Hello, and welcome back to the Power of Planning podcast. This is the first episode for 2023. I hope you all had a wonderful holiday season. When I give estate planning presentations in my community, I'd like to start with one of the habits featured in Stephen R. Covey's best-selling book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. The quote is, begin with the end in mind. This is really what an effective estate plan does. As we start this new year, it's an opportune time for you to begin with the end in mind and resolve to do proper planning if you've not already done so. As promised, this month I'm going to be discussing a revocable living trust in detail. First of all, what is a revocable trust? It's simply a written document that is a very powerful estate planning tool. It's called a revocable living trust because it's created during your lifetime. And as its name implies, a revocable trust can be amended, revoked, or terminated at any time, provided you're of sound mind. When you have a revocable trust, generally you are the grantor, also known as the settlor or trustor, which simply means that you're the person who established the trust. You are also the initial trustee. That's the person who administers the trust and is in charge of managing the trust assets and making distributions in accordance with the terms of the trust. And you're also the initial beneficiary. That's the person who is to receive the trust income and principal, often for one's health, education, maintenance, and support. The trust document should also identify who will be your successor trustees in the event of your death or resignation or incapacity. Now, of course, the trust will also outline how your assets will be distributed upon your death. And trust beneficiaries can include people or charities. What are the benefits of a revocable trust? There are many of them. Probably the most popular or the most widely known benefit of the revocable trust is it's a probate avoidance tool. Whether you fund the trust during your lifetime or at your death through beneficiary designations, any assets that are titled in the trust will not have to be probated. Now, you may recall that probate is the process where the court is involved with the administration of your assets at your death. I spoke about that last year in one of the earlier episodes. When your assets have to be probated, they are generally not immediately available for your named beneficiaries, and there is shrinkage of your estate due to court costs and attorney's fees. Since trust administration is not a court-supervised process like probate, it's usually quicker and less expensive for your assets to be administered. Whoever you name as successor trustee will assemble the assets, pay any debts that you owe at the time of your death, and distribute the assets in accordance with the terms of your trust. The trust also gives you the ability to control from the grave. And for some folks, that's a big benefit. They want to be able to outline in detail how and when their beneficiaries will receive the assets of the trust. For example, you can direct that 
your children receive a certain percentage amount or a fractional share of the trust assets when they reach certain ages and further direct that the trust terminates when they reach a particular age. The trust document can direct the creation of additional subtrusts at your death for the benefit of your spouse or kids or other beneficiaries, including a special needs trust, as I discussed in the October episode of the podcast. Many of my clients prefer that I draft their trust agreement so that subtrusts are created for each of their children, with each subtrust receiving an equal share of the trust assets. And those assets are held in trust for the benefit of the child for that child's lifetime. The trustee has the discretion to make distributions of trust income and principal for the child's benefit over their lifetime. And if the child wants to buy a new car and asks for the trustee to purchase a Ferrari, then the trustee can say, no, we're going to buy you a Prius instead. Or if the child wants the trust to pay for the entire purchase price of a new home, the trustee can choose instead to fund only a down payment for the home. The trust terms can also restrict or withhold distributions if the beneficiary fails to meet certain educational milestones or if they're not a productive citizen of society in order to avoid them from becoming trust fund babies where they're solely reliant on the assets of the trust to meet their daily needs. The trust can also put restrictions in place for those individuals who may be um, abusing drugs or alcohol or have a history of doing that and may be prone to doing that again in the future. The sky is really the limit on how much you can customize your trust. We also like to address common disaster beneficiaries. Those would be the individuals or the charitable organizations or other entities that you would name to receive the assets of the trust as takers of last resort. If you were not survived by a spouse or any children or any grandchildren, any descendants at all, um, if all the people that you have named specifically in the document fail to survive you, there's some huge common disaster, then who would you want to receive your assets? So you could take it down many, many layers when we talk about contingencies. And that's something that's really beautiful with the trust. You've got the flexibility to do that. Now, generally, assets that are held in trust for a beneficiary are not included in their gross taxable estate unless we're talking about the assets held in a marital trust for a surviving spouse. And they are generally protected from the beneficiary's creditors in the event they go through a divorce or declare bankruptcy or are sued in the case of adult children, for instance. A revocable trust is also beneficial in the event you become incapacitated during your lifetime. For example, you develop Alzheimer's or dementia. Your trust assets will be administered for your benefit by whomever you name as successor trustee. So they will take over immediately without having to go to court and ask for a guardianship to be established over you. Because as we've just kind of gone over with the terms of the trust, there's a lot of power that the trustee has. 
selecting a trustee is probably one of the most difficult planning decisions or most critical planning decisions that you must make. And typically, I recommend that clients name multiple individuals in succession. So you would have a first successor and then a second successor and then potentially a third successor just to allow for the possibility of what if your first choice predeceases you or is otherwise unable to serve. Sometimes clients will want to name multiple people as co-trustees. They'll want to name their two children as co-trustees. And the question then becomes, do you want them to have to act unanimously? If the answer is yes, do they see eye to eye on things generally? Or is there going to be quite an opportunity for there to be ongoing conflict? Because we want them to be able to work together efficiently in order for the trust to be administered efficiently. If we are naming more than two people, are we going to require that they also act unanimously? Are we going to say they have to act by majority? Or do you want to name multiple people as co-trustees, but say that any of them can act independently and joint signatures are not required? Again, these are all the different ways that you can customize this document, You know, work with a lawyer so that they can customize it based on what your desires are, what your needs are, what your particular family circumstances are, because each one of us is different. Each one of us is going to have a plan that's unique to our own needs and our own family circumstances. And then if you have a situation where you're setting up a trust for your surviving spouse, and this is a second marriage, then I would caution you from naming a child from your first marriage to be co-trustee with their step-parent. Um, that's oftentimes a recipe for disaster and can lead to litigation. You may also want to consider naming a corporate trustee if you have an existing relationship with a potential or an existing financial institution that you have your bank accounts or brokerage accounts with. Many of those corporate trustees or many of those institutions will serve as corporate trustees. They will often have a threshold or a particular minimum of trust assets before they're able to serve. But that's something else for you to consider because sometimes clients just don't have anybody that they feel they can trust to put in this very critical role. And that really is at the heart of it. It has to be someone that you can trust wholeheartedly, someone that is pretty good with finances, right? They have to be financially savvy. And at minimum, they need to be able to recognize this is a time where I need to engage a financial advisor. Or this is a time where I need to bring a lawyer in to help me administer the trust. Or maybe this is a situation where I need help filing the tax returns for the trust. A revocable living trust does not have to file separate tax returns. So as long as you're alive, there is no separate return that's required with the IRS. You just simply report any income that is generated with regard to the trust assets on your personal 1040 return. However, once 
you pass away, or if you set up the trust with your surviving spouse once or your spouse, once you both pass away, now the trust becomes irrevocable. And once it's irrevocable, it's its own tax paying entity. So it gets its own tax ID number. While you're alive, it's going to report under your social security number. But once the trust becomes irrevocable, it gets assigned a tax ID number. Your lawyer or your CPA can do that for you. And then once it gets its own tax ID number, if it generates $600 or more in gross income in any one calendar year, then it's going to have to file its own income tax return, a 1041 return. So you want to be able to select a trustee who's going to know that there are these various obligations that they have. They are considered to be or must be a prudent investor. And so they need to be able to administer the trust efficiently and in accordance with the terms of the trust for the sake of all of the beneficiaries. So keeping all of that in mind, that often for many clients makes that decision a difficult one. I would say probably after deciding who is going to be guardian of their children, that's probably the next most difficult decision that clients kind of wrestle with is who they're going to name as trustee. Now, a trustee is entitled to be compensated for their service, and compensation is typically calculated as a percentage of the total trust assets and paid at least annually for continuing trusts. And of course, corporate trustees will charge a fee based on their published fee schedule. So when you sign your trust agreement, that is step one. It's a very important step. It's a great first step, but it is just that, a first step. And for many folks, that's all they ever do. And candidly, you're not getting the full benefit. You're not getting your money's worth if that's all you do is work with an attorney and sign your trust agreement and leave it at that. The trust is not magically funded just because you sign it you have to now do some homework. And it can be a little daunting at times, but I'm sure that, um, you know, with my particular clients, I give them customized trust funding instructions, and I'm sure that most attorneys do that as well. And so based on the assets that my clients share with me that they own, then I tell them, okay, now this is how you go about getting those assets into your trust if it's appropriate for those assets to be in the trust. And so that is the next critical step, funding the trust. Um, So many people fail to fund the trust. And so I'm really urging all of you that for those of you who decide to set up the trust, sign the trust agreement, you definitely need to do that next critical step. So if you fail to properly and fully fund the trust during your lifetime or at your death through beneficiary designations, and I'll talk about that in a moment, then assets outside of the trust, if they're not jointly titled or if they're not otherwise designated to other beneficiaries other than the trust, then they will have to be probated and become a part of the trust through the provisions of your pour over will which is a will that is done in connection with the establishment of 
a trust, a revocable living trust. And that's a type of will that I touched on in my September 2022 episode of this podcast. So I'm urging you to fund the trust. And you're probably asking me, how do we actually go about funding it? What does that mean exactly? So with bank and brokerage accounts, it means that you go to the financial institution where the accounts are held and you either complete paperwork to have the trust become the owner of those accounts instead of you personally. These are non-retirement accounts. I'm going to talk about those separately in a moment. Either you transfer the ownership from you personally to your trust or you designate the trust as the pay on death or the transfer on death beneficiary. And either way, you're funding the trust. If you change the title so that the trust owns it, the trust owns it immediately. It owns it during your lifetime. If you don't want to do that, because that will often mean for many institutions, you can't just go to the bank and say, I want to change the titling from me to me as trustee of my trust. That oftentimes will mean that they will have to open up a new account a new bank account or a new brokerage account, still under your social security number, but now it's a trust account with you as trustee of your trust. And so sometimes clients say to me, I don't want a new account. I've got my automatic debits already set up. I've got my direct deposits from social security and my pension and everything else already set up in this account. I don't want to have to scrap all that and do a new one. And I completely understand that's a lot of work. So the alternative to that is keep the account in your name, but make sure that you fill out the paperwork at the bank and the brokerage, you know, institutions and designate the trust as the pay on death or the transfer on death beneficiary. And so oftentimes when we have a married couple and we want to make sure that we have the best in terms of creditor protection, then I'll say keep the accounts in your joint names as husband and wife and then make the trust the primary beneficiary of the account by, again, filling out that paperwork at each of those financial institutions. And that is a perfectly acceptable alternative when it comes to funding your trust. And keep in mind that by designating the trust as the beneficiary, instead of let's say you have four kids and you currently have them as 25% each beneficiaries on those accounts, you could leave it that way from a probate avoidance standpoint. But from a customization standpoint, if you designate the trust as the beneficiary, now in your trust agreement, you can provide If one of those children fail to survive me, then that 25% goes to their children if they have any. And if not, that 25% gets added to the shares for my other children. You can't put that level of complexity on a simple beneficiary designation form at the bank. But if you designate the trust as the beneficiary on that bank form, now the trust dictates all those contingencies. All the customization that you did within the document applies now to those accounts that are either titled in the trust or designated to pay on death or transfer on your death to the trust. 
we never want to change the owner of retirement accounts to the trust because that will create negative income tax consequences. And we typically do not designate your overall trust as the beneficiary of retirement accounts. We instead designate retirement benefits subtrusts that can be established under retirement accounts. And I will talk about that more in the next episode of this podcast. With regard to annuities, same sort of income tax implications here in that we want to be very cautious. We don't typically have the trust-owned annuities, um, and we typically caution against having a revocable trust be named as a beneficiary on an annuity because if you name an individual, they have the ability to stretch out that annuity income for their lifetime. When you designate a trust, that income, those income payments can only be made over a period generally of five years. So because it shortens the payout period, it really accelerates the income tax consequences. So that's another one where, again, these are just general recommendations. Everything is going to be unique to your circumstances. That's where when you sit down with a lawyer and you share the information with them about your assets, they're going to be able to provide you customized guidance based on your particular situation. We also typically do not recommend titling vehicles in the name of the trust. One, it's harder to insure them that way. Two, if the vehicle is involved with an a- in an accident, it can expose those assets of the trust. Um, just, just, you know, revo- one thing that, that really leads me to an important point that I want to make about revocable trust. Clients will often come in and say, I want a revocable trust to protect my assets. That is not the case. Revocable trusts do not provide you creditor protection. Irrevocable trusts do. And that's a whole different type of trust for a whole another episode of this podcast. Assets that are held by your revocable trust are considered to be yours because you have full access to them. You receive benefit from them. You control them typically as trustee. So if you were to get sued personally, revocable trust assets are generally vulnerable to attack by your creditors. That's an that's a very frequently a misconception that people have, and so I wanted to be sure to address that. Now, the trust is easy to be um, when it comes to funding it with life insurance proceeds. That's a very popular way to fund the trust. You can designate the trust as the pay on death beneficiary on life insurance, and with business interests, you can transfer stock into the trust. You can assign your membership interest in a limited liability company over to a trust. You can assign a partnership interest over to a trust. And we have to be careful again, like with everything, if it's an S corporation, then there needs to be certain language in the trust that allows for the trust to hold S corporation stock without creating any negative tax implications for that S corporation. So everything has to be customized. I really can't say that enough. And again, the beauty of the trust is that it allows you to do just that. With real estate, we retitle real estate in the name of the trust. So 
Florida has very unique homestead laws. And so we don't always, you know, there are certain considerations, just like everything else, we need to weigh what's most beneficial. But generally, if we have real estate, then we can retitle that property into the trust by doing a deed. And, you know, depending on whether or not it's subject to a mortgage, there are a number of considerations, but you can contribute real estate to a trust. And the way that you go about retitling the real estate is there needs to be a deed that is prepared, reflecting the trustee of the trust as the owner instead of you personally. And one of the considerations when people come to me and say, do I need a trust? And, you know, here's what we own. What do you think? When people come to me and they own real estate outside of Florida or outside of your state of residence, then that is one of the key factors in deciding that a revocable trust could be beneficial. Because the way real estate works is that if you own real estate in your individual name, it's not jointly titled with right of survivorship or as husband and wife, and you pass away, and let's say you own a home in North Carolina or a beach property in California, and you pass away, that property has to be probated if it's not in a trust. And so that is going to trigger two probates. It's going to trigger a probate in what we call your domiciliary estate. That is the state where you were living at the time of your death. And then it's going to trigger a probate in the state where the property is located. But when you set up a revocable trust and you retitle that property in the name of the trust, you've now avoided a probate of that property in not just one, but both states. So that is one key factor that we look at when determining and recommending whether or not a revocable trust can be beneficial to a client. So when we are talking about revocable living trusts, there's always cost, right? There's a cost is always a consideration. And yes, a an estate plan that includes a revocable trust does cost more, generally cost more than one that does not include a trust. But it's a trade-off. You pay more for the planning with the goal of avoiding the probate on the back end. So yes, it may cost more to do the plan, but you're sparing your beneficiaries the cost of the probate and the court delays and the whole court process that you would otherwise have for assets that would be subject to probate. So revocable living trusts have grown more and more popular over the years, largely because of the probate avoidance benefit. So as you make your resolutions for the new year, resolve to do the proper planning and determine if a revocable trust is an appropriate tool for you. Next month's episode, I'll focus on retirement benefits planning, which will include a discussion of the new legislation called Secure Act 2.0. Thank you for joining me and Happy New Year. Music